Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, October 11th, 2011, and our special guest is Tim Wilson, the author of Redirect. Tim, thanks for being here. I told you to turn your mic off, so you have to turn it back on to say hi. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. No, I'm here. Great to be here, Steve. Thanks so much for being here. The Future of Education is sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project, and support is given by Blackboard Collaborate. That's the program that we're in. It's a lot of fun, as you'll see. Coming up, Library 2.011, a virtual conference on the future of libraries, November 2nd. It's actually to the 4th of November if you're in Australia, so we apologize for that. But it is two days, about 150 sessions right now, all for free, all online. Should be a blast. The future of libraries and librarianship, November 2nd through 4th, Library 201. Coming up on the future of education, this Thursday we're going to hear from Gina Bianchini formerly of Ning, now of Mighty Bell. Uh, David Lordshire talks about libraries on Friday during a special during the day session. Lee Crockett uh, next week on literacy is not, not enough. Mark Sermon on the Open Badges Project. That should be a lot of fun. He's from Mozilla. Mike Mariner on the PBS Road Trip Nation show. Then our big conferences. Newest on this list, Tasha Bergson-Michelson from Google is going to talk about digital and search literacy. David Maxfield co-author of two fascinating books, Influencer and Crucial Conversations, is going to talk to us about education. I actually think, Tim, you and I could have a good conversation about that at some point, but we'll save that for another day. And then in January, okay. Scott McLeod and Ian Jukes will come on the show. If you've missed any shows, they're all up and recorded, both in full Illuminate versions, or Blackboard Collaborate versions, and MP3 files. We talked to Peter Cookson last week about a Children's Education Bill of Rights. A terrific show. If you missed that one, do listen in. Before that, a special panel on an iPods in the classroom implementation that kind of knocked my socks off, changed my mind about iPods and iPads in the classroom. Cecilia D'Olivera, the um, head of Open Courseware at MIT, came on. Bob Glenner, the filmmaker. Anyway, all those recordings are up. Lots of fun, and hope that you'll take advantage of that. I'm going to give you permission here to indicate on the whiteboard where you're listening from. So look for the second icon down. It's a little star. And click on that star, and then click on the map. Feel free to shout out in the chat as well. Adrian, we can see you're listening in from Australia. Looks like someone from New Zealand. Pleasure to see my wife is listening into the show. Anyway, wherever you're listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we sure appreciate your taking the time. Thank you for doing so. So, Tim, this is just a fascinating book for me. I I read it on a long plane flight. And uh, I marked up the pages with big wows everywhere. Are you getting that reaction from others? Has it been? Have you gotten the response you had hoped for? Uh, pretty much. Um, I mean, I I, uh, I have gotten some reviews that have used similar phrases. There was one reviewer, for example, who um, said the WTF quotient is very high. 
which amused me. But uh, yeah, I think I do make some claims that um, are a little controversial, and people seem to be picking up on them. Well, as much as I want to kind of dive into the story editing piece, I think it makes sense to start first by uh, talking about your concern to measure the effectiveness of social change techniques in carefully controlled scientific studies. Why is this so important to you? Well, sure. Um, in the book, I do use a medical analogy that when it comes to testing, say, a new drug that is, is um, that a researcher thinks might help a certain disease, there's a very rigorous process that the government requires uh, that the researcher, researcher go through before that drug is approved. Uh, clinical trials and so on, and yet we have no such similar uh, procedures for social or educational interventions. Now, I'm not suggesting we need something quite so rigorous as um, as testing a drug, but on the other hand, there are lots of examples of programs that have been put into place that were never adequate, adequately tested and turned out not only to um, be ineffective, but in some cases even do harm. So I do have a, a, a mantra throughout the book that, if nothing else, let's test these interventions. So the mantra I read was, does it work? Does it, does it <laughs> yes, work? Yes. You know, that it's not asked as often as it needs to be. And that sometimes even our common sense takes us in the wrong direction. Well, I think that's that's an issue that we don't have common sense as to whether a particular drug should work, but we have a whole storehouse of of expectations and hunches about what programs should work. I'll give one example. It makes a lot of sense to me that if we want an adolescent to avoid a life of crime, that we should scare him straight and take him to a prison and introduce him to hardened criminals and have those criminals tell him what it is like to be behind bars. Well, there are such programs, and uh, my common sense and other people's is wrong because not only do they not work, it's, it's amazing, but it actually has been shown in several studies that these programs make it more likely that a child will, will commit crimes. Uh, we can go into the reasons for that, but, it, but it's a beautiful example of how common sense can sometimes be dead wrong. So that's not the only sacred cow you slay in the book. Um, that you actually start with a story about critical incident stress debriefing which is a, a sort of a very powerful kind of beginning to the book. What, what happens there and, and what do they think is going to happen and what actually happens? Well, critical incident stress debriefing, or CISD as it's known, is a very common technique to help people who, who have witnessed some sort of traumatic event or gone through a trauma. So it's used by many uh, fire and police departments, for example, to help officers who have witnessed some horrific crime or, or tragedy. It was used uh, after 911 with many of the citizens of New York who witnessed the towers come down, a terribly traumatic thing. And the premise is that if we can catch people as soon as possible after such an event and get them to vent their feelings, to, to talk about the event in as much detail as they can, that this will head off uh, problems down the road. It's really a kind of a catharsis assumption that, that getting people to open up uh, will prevent them from bottling up their feelings and maybe help prevent post-traumatic stress syndrome. Makes a lot of sense, uh, but it's another example where the common sense is wrong, that 
These programs were put into place uh, before they were tested adequately. They're actually still required by many police and fire departments. And yet the really good control studies where people are randomly assigned to go through this process or not show that um, it actually can, well, it, it's very clear they don't work. What's a little less clear or controversial is, is whether they actually backfire. There, there's some evidence that they do by solidifying people's memories for these terrible events, that sometimes good old just distraction, going home, watching television, playing with your kids, doing something else that you don't think about the event, let it settle in a little, is, turns out to be a pretty good thing to do, and making people focus on it so soon after it happened can actually make those memories of the event and can print them in their minds in ways that are hard to forget. So it's just another uh, example of how sometimes we do the very wrong thing, of course, with, with, uh, with good intentions. I'm going to try and draw three analogies together here and hopefully segue us to the next part of the book. So you talk about um, medical procedures that we now know don't make sense. One, one was blistering and the other was bloodletting. Um, both uh, not effective, but one actually harmful. And I think you even mentioned that it's believed that George Washington maybe died from the bloodletting. So you're putting yes. these social programs into two categories. Some that don't work, but they don't necessarily do harm, and that others that, that actually make things worse. Did I get that right? Yes, yes, definitely. Okay, so that, let me bring in my third piece here. So you also tell the story, as, as many of us have read many places, of Dr. Semmelweis and the discovery of the connection, discovering the connection between hospital infections and microorganisms. So uh, the more I read the book, the more I felt as though story editing actually had some real similarities with that. Kind of an invisible process that once discovered can make a really big difference. Is that too big a stretch? Uh, do you feel awkward about that claim, or is it something you feel no, passionate about? No, not at all, and I and I think it's um, it illustrates both the beauty, but also the the difficulty of of studying story editing. So, by story editing, I, I really mean um, well. Stories are the way we organize and live our lives, the kinds of narratives we tell ourselves about uh, who we are and why we do what we do, and this, these are the driving forces uh, behind most of our actions. And people can get themselves in the fixes by uh, negative stories, stories that are too pessimistic, uh, perhaps. And in the book, I go over a host of interventions I call story editing, which are uh, techniques that social psychologists have developed that are usually fairly brief kinds of interventions to help people redirect their stories in a healthier direction. Now, the, the, uh, the analogy to um, microorganisms that cause disease is these stories um, are hard to, to investigate because they are largely unconscious. I think we have many implicit assumptions we make that are not necessarily easy to verbalize, and that makes them hard for the psychologist to document and, and to study. So in, in some ways, I think we're like that Hungarian doctor who discovered disease through the experimental method. He, he just made physicians wash their hands before uh, delivering babies, and without ever 
directly discovering microorganisms um, came up with a theory that there must be something on, on the doctor's hands that were transmitting disease. I think we're at a very similar point with the study of these stories, that they're, they're hard to put under the microscope, but they seem definitely to be there and, and to be a powerful tool to change people's behavior. So I, I like that analogy. <laughs> Well, I, it really had that effect on me. As I read through the book, I kept kind of recasting things based on this importance of narratives. The, the sense that really stood out for me in the book was that we interpret rather than observe the world. And we have these running narratives in our heads, and multiple narratives, and often sometimes maybe even conflicting, but that those narratives drive our behavior based on the perceptions that we have. Uh, that reminded me a lot of cognitive behavior therapy. Is there a connection? Mm -hmm. Well, in some ways, I think there is. That that um, CBT is a powerful tool to help people who are um, experiencing psychological difficulties, such as depression or or anxiety disorders, and it seems to work by getting people to identify their negative thinking patterns and giving them some tools to to um, change those. And the way I view the techniques in my book is is kind of getting people at an earlier stage than that, before they have a full-blown uh, psychological problem and would benefit from psychotherapy. Uh, they may be at a point where a little nudge will send them down a narrative road that's, that's better for them. Uh, there's examples of, of students, for example, who are doing poorly and are kind of at a narrative fork in the road where they're not sure how to understand this or interpret it. Does this mean that I'm a hopeless failure or, or does it mean that I somehow can learn to do better in school if I try harder? And there's some interventions that I and others have done that show just a little bit of a nudge can send them down the better path. Uh, but but this is really before they need uh, psychotherapy. So I really want to talk about that nudge and the story prompt things. But I will tell you that one of the intriguing pieces of this that really confirmed it for me was recognizing the degree to which certain quotations have really altered my perceptions. And that, hmm. uh, that helped me to realize that even a small, simple thought can kind of radically alter your worldview. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do you have some examples of that? Or? I have one uh, I heard uh, about a year ago. Not every cloud brings rain. And that was just such a fascinating thing. It kind of opened my eyes to the, sort of the difference between challenges and disasters. Ah, interesting. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> okay, so. I've seen things uh, as an opportunity, yeah. So, uh, so, small interventions can sometimes reap huge benefits. Um, and, uh, and, and you have, uh, there are three techniques that are sort of significantly identified in the book that we'll go through. And then one that I think that you use quite a bit, but I'm not sure that you fully um, labeled as such, but I'll, I'll ask you about that when we get there. So the first is story prompting. And why don't you tell that story of the college students and kind of the, I think it was a 15 minute video that sort of significantly altered the course of their academic careers. Sure. Well, I think uh, college students, uh, when they begin college, are often at a point where uh, their story isn't well formed about what kind of, of student they might be or how successful they'll be. And they're very vulnerable to, uh, if, they, if they encounter a stumble in the road, they're vulnerable to uh, getting caught in a pessimistic style of thinking. And so many years ago, uh, we did an intervention with first-year college students in which, uh, well, first of all, we identified people we thought were at risk. So these were students who were not doing well and were quite worried about their performance. 
And we brought them in and randomly assigned them to two groups, our, our so-called story prompting group. We simply gave them some statistics suggesting that lots of people have problems the first year but improve their grades once they become uh, sophomores, juniors, and seniors. And we have showed them some videotaped interviews of um, older students who said, yeah, you know, it was a little rough for me my first semester, but uh, by the time I, I got to be a junior, my grades had improved significantly. So really a very simple message, but one that, that we hoped would make a little light bulb go off in these kids' heads and say, hey, you know, uh, maybe this isn't me. It's something about the situation that I need to, to deal with. And to see if that was true, we followed these students for about a year. And indeed, the ones that were in this story prompting group, as opposed to our control group that just got no intervention, um, got better grades and uh, were significantly less likely to drop out of college, too. So uh, sometimes, and well, I think the reason these, these little interventions can be so powerful is they can be self-sustaining. That a student who entertains the idea that, hey, you know, maybe this isn't me. I, I just need to try a little harder. If he or she does try a little harder, it pays off perhaps with a better grade on the next test. And that reinforces this message, making them try even harder the next time. So they, they get bumped from a self-defeating cycle into a more self-enhancing way of thinking that kind of feeds itself over time. This reminded me a lot of the interview I did with Carol Black on her book, and you mm -hmm. mentioned it, of course, in your book, uh, Mindset, and the difference between sort of a fixed and a growth mindset and seeing the brain as a muscle um, versus feeling that you can't change or improve. Um, and it also reminded me of the marshmallow experiment that um, Professor Michelle did at Stanford. Are you familiar with yes. that experiment? Yes. So mm -hmm. I, I was really curious about um, I think there was a follow-up experiment where someone actually, maybe it was it Albert Bandura, actually tried to teach the kids skills to do a better job with self-control. Does that fall in line with what you're doing here? Well, it does to some extent. I mean, my memory of those studies is that a simple strategy like um, don't look at the marshmallow and and uh, sing a song to yourself, you know, so little strategies like that, so you're not just staring at it, wanting to eat it uh, before the experimenter comes back. Um, so those sort of self-control control strategies can be very effective. I guess story editing is a little bit different in that it's really trying to get at the narrative in the head about what kind of person I am. I'm a big fan of Carol Dweck's research. I think hers uh, idea of fixed mindsets versus uh, changeable or growth mindsets is, is one example of such a narrative that's very important to, to change. So is there a little bit of art here in understanding approaches that would help a narrative to change um, that, uh, that would actually make a, a difference to the narrative? And I'm, I'm thinking about even as a parent, uh, you know, the difference between sort of lecturing and control versus the kind of activity that would help shift that mindset that feels like it's much more subtle. Well, that's a good point. And as you said that, the first example that came to my mind was parenting, and on which I have a chapter in the book. And, and you know, one thing I, I say, uh, easier said than done in some ways, is that parents should use rewards and punishments with a light hand. The trick is to use them so that they're powerful enough that they do shape our kids' behavior in the way we want to, but they're not so strong that the kids think that's why they're behaving uh, correctly. So take a reward. If we reward our kids too much for doing well in school or, or practicing the piano, 
they'll begin to think that's why they're doing it, and it might undermine their interest in that activity. But um, kids being kids, you may need a little bit of a, a, a reward to get them to practice the piano. So there's that middle ground, and it is a bit of an art to find that. I think parents need to experiment a little with that. And, and um, I have to say, with, uh, with my two kids, they, they sort of caught on in my kind of awkward ways of doing this, and they could kind of in a sing-song voice repeat back to me, you know, I know that, that I'm, I'm not eating my peas just to get the dessert. Um, I know about this reward thing, and, and so it got to be kind of a joke with us. But, but uh, yeah, there is an art to it. So you say that jokingly, and I was laughing as I heard it. But I also felt like, as I was thinking about that same idea, that there's something very healthy about that kind of transparency or visibility when you get to that stage. Recognizing, yes, this is, you know, I am trying to make sure I'm uh, helping you, but I also am, as your parent, helping you to be a better parent for your own children. And so it does need to be transparent. Yes, that's a really good point. I think so. Um, you know, at the same time, these subtle prompts, um, uh, I mean, they, they do have to be subtle, and that means sometimes not too obvious. So, so I think, uh, you know, kind of directing our kids' behavior gently um, in ways that they may not even recognize they're being guided can, can be a good thing. <laughs> so I really like that, and I like how seeing uh, a lot of the social social science stories that you tell, that I've read in other books or in other places, through the lens of, of story editing really helped me to understand them. And one in particular was Alfie Cohn's work on Punished by Rewards, and it gave me some clarity in understanding uh, kind of the mechanisms by which the, those allegiances would change from loving reading to doing it for pizza. Yes, yes. I mean, this is a very controversial issue because there are some economists who feel that the best way we can motivate uh, kids to do better in school, particularly underprivileged kids, is to pay them, basically. Pay them for uh, coming to school, pay them for getting good grades. And there have been attempts to do that in various school systems. Uh, none, to my knowledge, have been very successful. And I think one of the problems is that if they're done with too heavy a hand, it can undermine the kids' interest, that, that uh, it can send the message that you're doing this to get the money and not because this is something that interests you. Now, you know, admittedly, it's a difficult issue because if, if kids have no interest to start with and they're not, aren't going to school, well, something to get them there can be useful. So I'm, I'm, I'm not saying we should give up all rewards or incentives. Um, they just have to be used a little more lightly than I think has been done in, in some cases. Well, I want to go back a little bit to the subtle piece because one of the themes in the book for me was not just that these behaviors self-perpetuate within an individual, which they do, which is why maybe a small intervention can help, but that they can self-perpetuate between generations. And, and I read in the book a lot of um, encouragement to be to model that in a lot of ways, as a teacher or a parent, you're modeling your narrative to, to your student or your child in everything that you do. And that that can be, while subtle, it can be a really powerful social force that perpetuates itself. That's a really interesting observation, Steve. It's not one I talk about much in the book, as you know, but, but I think, um, you know, especially in parenting, I mean, kids are incredibly good observers. Of, of their parents and their peers. And uh, they pick up on 
what we do um, incredibly well. And so I think modeling, um, you know, we can lecture as much as we want, but showing them uh, a good way to behave is, is very powerful. It was especially kind of noticeable for me to think of responses to things that would happen and how my, in many ways, my own narratives or my thoughts um, have been defined either by a response that a parent or significant adult uh, had to a situation or my needing to find a way to respond differently. Yes. Now I think that's, uh, that's a really good observation. Okay, yeah, sometimes so you, it's very... Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, please. Well, sometimes it's very explicit, I think, if we, um, you say, if we see someone who reacts in a different way and, and we kind of uh, talk to ourselves and say, gosh, you know, what would I have done in that situation? What were they thinking? And, you know, that, that can be a very powerful way to work through for ourselves what, what our narrative is. So uh, if, we, if we stick with the modeling a little, um, you, you know, you talk about the uh, sort of repeating nature and, and sometimes family cycles. And, and in specific, you talk about uh, insecure attachment and a negative cycle there. And some pretty dramatic interventions that kind of change that, uh, I think specifically for women who were struggling with babies. And, and I think there may also be a story about abuse. Um, so can you tell a little, because you do call uh, one organization out kind of explicitly uh, that their programs fail to actually make a difference. Are you willing to talk about that? Sure. Um, it's, uh, you know, child abuse is a, a terrible problem in, in the United States and, and far too common. And there have been programs that have been developed to try to help parents who are at risk for abusing their kids. And uh, there's one called Healthy Families America, which I, I believe is the most prevalent program. It's in most communities in the United States. And it's an incredibly well-intentioned program. Uh, families who are at risk are assigned a home visitor who visits them, I, I believe it's about 20 times over the course of a year. So every couple of weeks or so. And they try to help the parents with parenting skills and things of that nature. Well, unfortunately, it's, it's another example of a program that was put into place throughout the country before it was adequately tested with a random controlled trial. And once it was tested, to my knowledge, uh, there's never been a, a good, well-done experimental study that has shown that that program has any benefit whatsoever. So then enter the stage a, a social psychologist at the University of California, Santa Barbara, named Daphne Bugenthal who tacked on just a little extra to this program. She trained the home visitors to help the parents reinterpret why their kids were acting out. So apparently it's pretty common in uh, parents who abuse their kids to have this cycle of blame where when their child fusses or cries, they tend to blame the child for that. Say, oh, he's out to get me or, or he's mad at me, something um, along those lines. Well, what Bucentall did is train the home visitors to just kind of in a Socratic way question that. Say, well, um, you know, can you think of another reason why your child might be crying? And, and the parents might say, hmm, well, um, I don't know. Maybe it's not that he's mad at me. Maybe, um, maybe he has indigestion. And once they arrived at a more, you know, a less pejorative explanation, one that they could actually do something about, the home visitor would reinforce that and say, yeah, you know, that's... Uh, that sounds right. Why don't we see what, what we can do to change that? 
And so Buchan Tall, she's a good scientist. She, she tested this with random assignments. Some families got the home visits with this little extra story prompting uh, intervention. Others did not. And it had dramatic effects. It, it reduced abuse in those families uh, dramatically. It even increased the health of the children. She measured cortisol in the babies, which is a hormone that's a sign of stress. And the ones who were in the families that got this extra boost um, had lower cortisol levels. So, you know, another beautiful story prompting, uh, very subtle, simple kind of intervention that had dramatic effects. Yeah, I left that those stories and that part of the book uh, just kind of stunned at the degree to which healthy families produce outcomes that are so positive and um, and just how sort of sort of self-repeating that would be uh, you know families that do a good job with reading or vocabulary or music or just sort of decision making just the the incredible benefit that a child in that kind of a family gets no, it's true, and and you also mentioned attachment theory. There there is uh, lots of research showing that the kind of bond that a caregiver establishes with a baby in the early years with an infant is is very important in establishing a narrative in the child's head that that adults can be trusted and 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 loved and and to have a secure sense of of attachment, and and that pays big dividends down the road. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's always hard to believe how fast the hour goes, but we're about halfway through, and I want to get to uh, your next sort of explicit technique, which is the writing exercises. And uh, you give several different examples of this, but all at core have this uh, sense of uh, not only just writing down your thoughts and emotions, but then uh, reconstruing the experiences to explain them. Did I get that right? Yes, uh, there, there have been a variety of such exercises that are designed for people who um, are, say, troubled by something in their lives and haven't been able to quite move beyond it. So in contrast to CISD, where we, which we talked about earlier, where people are asked right after a trauma to, to express it, these writing techniques um, work best if some time has passed. You, you've tried to get over it yourself, perhaps. Um, but it's still weighing on you a little bit. A few weeks have gone by, you find yourself thinking about uh, some traumatic events. Well, uh, the research says take out a piece of paper and for about 15 minutes a night, say four nights in a row, just write about your deepest uh, emotions and feelings about this event. Uh, uh, don't worry about grammar. Um, do it in a place by yourself where you can just freely express your, your thoughts and feelings. Uh, this technique, which was pioneered by James Pennebaker, a, a social psychologist, uh, is just fascinating. Now, in the short run, as you can imagine, it's pretty unpleasant to do this. People often cry, they, they get immersed in this event. Um, but over the long run, particularly if by the end of the exercise they have uh, found a new way of telling the story, found new meaning in this event, which often happens, then down the road they show better health, better immune function, uh, immune system functioning, uh, better uh, subjective well-being. And some later studies have, have kind of honed uh, more specifically how to do this writing exercise. And, and as you said, uh, there's, there, there's some research that suggests that the best way to do it is to take a third-person perspective on ourselves. So rather than really immersing yourself as if the event was happening again, 
kind of treated as if you were a fly on the wall watching the event unfold to you, and also focused on um, why the event occurred. That these are the conditions in which people are most successful at reinterpreting in a way that allows them to move beyond these events. So it, it's a powerful technique. Yeah, it reminded me of a period of, of my life where I did a lot of journaling, and it gave me mm -hmm. an ability to kind of look back at that and see the degree to which I was kind of reshaping my life at that point. Yeah, no, I, I at various points in my life have done the same, and and. Uh, you know, sometimes we're at a point in our lives where it's just hard to make sense of, of a particular event or relationship or something that's happened to us, and, and writing can be a powerful tool to, to find some meaning in it. Okay, so next uh, was uh, do good, be good. And I, this was, there was just this great story about uh, teen pregnancies. And uh, uh, this this was maybe the sort of the story that I really carried away from me in the book, um, the idea that changing behavior first can change the narrative. So can I ask you to to retell that story a little? Oh sure. Um, I mean this is a principle that dates back to Aristotle, who said that uh, you know one of the best ways to change who we are is to act that way first that often it's, it's our narratives follow our behavior rather than vice versa. And there are other uh, schools of thought that have said the same thing, that, that uh, try it until you make it, whatever that phrase is. Um, same idea, that this acting the way you want to be first is a way to have that narrative become ingrained. So the teen pregnancy story is uh, that these researchers came up with this school-based program done in high schools where um, they had kids um, take part in a weekly uh, health class. Um, but as part of it, they were asked to do uh, volunteer work for the year in some community agency. The kids got to choose uh, the agency, so it could be an old person's home or a daycare center, homeless shelter, whatever they wanted to do, and they got super supervision, but they were asked to, to commit to, to one of these agencies, which the kids did. Again, um, this is the mantra, a well-controlled experiment. The kids were randomly assigned to get this program or just a regular health class. And surprisingly, those who uh, did the volunteer work showed a dramatic, the girls showed a dramatic decrease in pregnancy rates over the course of the year. Um, they also did better academically, um, and some other similar uh, programs have found a reduction in teen violence as well. Well, why, you might ask, you know, why does volunteering um, uh, make kids less likely to get pregnant? And I suppose you could say the crass answer is, well, if they're volunteering at the old person's home, they're less likely to be home having sex, which may be some truth that. Uh, but I think if you delve into that study and look at other things they measured, I think what happened was it changed the kids' narratives, that the kids who are most likely to act in a risky way to start with are those who are disengaged, feel alienated, like there's nothing at stake for them in this community. But once they get involved in a community setting, they, they perhaps uh, find people there who depend on them and, and they learn to, to uh, uh, become attached to these folks, and they begin to feel more engaged and like there is something in this community for them, and that changes their narrative in a way that makes them act more responsibly. Yeah, that was a, a particularly touching story to me because um, 
it, it led me to a place of thinking, you know, what kinds of things can I do that I wouldn't normally associate with a narrative building that would actually make that difference, and especially with our kids, you know, what what things do we do that kind of help them tell a different story about themselves? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that really is powerful. So we're gonna we're gonna shift the Q and A in a few minutes, but before we do so, I want to kind of uh, go back to a, a macro view, and and ask if there are clues in your work here to thinking about larger cultural narratives. As individuals, we have narratives that, that describe and define what we do. But we also seem to have those narratives as a culture. And in some cases, they feel very broken. So our narrative around uh, prison and uh, crime reform, our narrative around education, um, uh, these seem to me to be narratives that we hold as a culture that, in fact, get us the opposite result sometimes of what we want. Have you thought about how you would apply some of these principles sort of to larger cultural issues? Well, boy, Steve, that's a really good observation. And I must say, uh, most of my thinking has been done at the individual level. Uh, but I think you're quite right. It's funny, you know, I gave a talk over in England about a month ago on this work, and a fellow in the audience uh, raised his hand and said, you know, if these, are, if these uh, approaches are so powerful, aren't they dangerous? I mean, couldn't, say, a political party get a hold of these and, and shape our narratives in a way that were to the advantage of that party and, and get the electorate to, to fall in line? And I thought, huh, hadn't really thought about it that way, but that kind of describes America you know, fairly well. Uh, I think uh, that's basically what politicians try to do is, is put forth a narrative that's to their advantage and and it may be right or it may be wrong, but the bottom line is vote for me. Um, and the, the larger cultural ones you mentioned, um, you know, I think there are some subcultures that, that end up with um, perhaps a maladaptive narrative. And, and I have to say, um, I don't know exactly what to do about that at a cultural level. Most of the techniques I've developed or others have developed have been more at an individual level. Um, but, you know, other than the art of persuasion where a leader such as our president or a congressperson um, um, really through um, narrative themselves tries to change the stories, um, it's a tough road to hell. Yeah, I, it's, so it's, I, we're thinking out loud about this, but it does occur to me that, you know, you identify in the book as others have sort of core human needs, uh, you know, belonging, significance, meaning, purpose. And it, it, maybe a clue would be, are those um, human emotions being used to bring people into uh, a set of behaviors or patterns that are unhealthy? And you know, Nazi Germany would certainly seem to fall into that category. Uh, so maybe in some ways it just helps us define movements. Well, I think that's true. And, you know, they can change rapidly. I think it's just less clear how to do it. So I think the Arab Spring is a beautiful example of this where, uh, a movement starts with uh, with one person who uh, protests and, and spreads so that pretty soon uh, a whole mass movement begins of people whose narrative has changed to think, you know, I can actually change the government um, if we work at this together. And, uh, you know, boy, I don't think anyone knows exactly how to trigger that or when it's going to happen, but it, it sure is powerful when it does. You also mentioned religion quite a few times in the book as kind of uniquely uh, capturing some of these narrative pieces and um, helping individuals and families in these ways. In, in, an, in an era in which 
we're less confident of organized religion or less apt to be religious. How do we address those concerns? Well, it's certainly true that one of the uh, critical ingredients for well-being is a sense of meaning, uh, having an explanatory system through which we can understand the world and our place in it and how we got here and where we're going. And over the eons, religion has been has supplied those those narratives very powerfully. And for those who who have faith and and believe them, um, I think that's great. I mean, I, I think the research shows that people who are religious, um, particularly if they're in a community of like-minded individuals, are a little happier. I think they can weather life's uh, ups and downs perhaps a little better. But, you know, religion isn't the only um, system of meaning that people can have. Um, I think there are plenty of atheists who, who have a very firm belief system of, of um, wanting to help others and, and uh, a sense of responsibility, social responsibility, um, that drives them to, to do good. And, and, you know, one certainly doesn't need religion to have that, that belief system. Um, it's just we need some belief system. Uh, uh, there's a, a cartoon I'm reminded of of, of uh, a guy who's climbing up a cliff to find the guru who's going to tell him the meaning of, of life. And he finally gets to the top of the mountain, and there's the guru sitting there, except the guru's wearing a T-shirt that says, life is a bitch and then you die. And, you know, that's not a good meaning system to, to uh, carry around with us. We need some sense of purpose and meaning, be it religious or, or otherwise. There, there was a quote from you, and I don't think it was in the book, but I think I picked it up from an article, where you talked about, um, I'll read it, I also think that my knowledge of social psychological research has made me more tolerant of people who have different points of view than I do or disagree with me about something. That really reminded me sort of of our current political situation and, um, and maybe in many ways, again, a reminder of the need for certain kinds of education that help us to see through other people's eyes and to see life through their narratives. Yeah, I think that that's really true. That that um, it, it helps to remind ourselves. I know it's true of me that that when we disagree with someone, um, you know, it feels so much like I'm seeing things the way they are and they're seeing things wrongly. And maybe that's true sometimes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, more often than not, um, it's that we have different interpretations of an event, that theirs may be as valid as mine. And, and before we're going to make any progress, we have to at least understand you know, what those different assumptions are, what the different stories are we're telling about, about the same event. So the big story in the last week, uh, week and a half in, in the education circles that I'm in has been have been movements towards stopping bullying. And you talk about this in the book. So specifically, what kind of advice would you give to those who are looking at trying to change patterns of bullying, um, given uh, the work from Redirect? Well, I should say that I'm not an expert in this area uh, particularly, but I do know of some programs that have been tested pretty well and and that involve you know quick interventions and, and uh, recognitions on the uh, point of uh, on the part of the students, parents, and teachers of what bullying is. Um, it's funny you mention that example because just on my local news last night, they were talking about bullying and they they interviewed um, some fourth graders and asked them for what their definition of bullying was. And it was really fun to see these fourth graders kind of tell their narrative. And they clearly had picked this up through a program and. 
And in their own words, they actually told it pretty well. This one girl said, you know, I, I think it's just when people are mean to another person for no reason. And and uh, they sort of had the narrative that I think made it easier to recognize in, in what's going on and, and then perhaps to, to do something about it. Okay, so we're talking with Tim Wilson about his book, Redirect, Surprising New Science of Psychological Change. This is the point in the program at which we shift to Q&A, although I've always got some prepared questions if we don't get any in the chat. But you can either put a question in the chat, or if you'd like, there are some icons in the participant window, and the third one over lets you raise your hand. I'll give you the microphone, and you can ask Tim a question. Tim, uh, so while we're waiting for a question to come in, um, I've been reading a book on something called Appreciative Inquiry, which is brand new to me. But it's about uh, using the act of asking questions about when things work right to help uh, facilitate change in organizations or in, in um, uh, large communities. And I, uh, I kind of loved how the two books dovetailed for me because it felt as though it actually involved people in uh, explicitly sharing their best narratives. Um, have you seen that approach used before and, and uh, does it make sense to you? I'm actually not familiar with that, Steve, but it sounds very intriguing. So th this is more at the group level, an organizational level, telling stories about those organizations. Is, is that the idea? And well, the organizations, as a part of their change process, the first thing they do is to send a team out to interview dozens to hundreds of people to have them explain what they think the, the, the best and most successful things that they're doing at work are. Uh, sort of the, uh, looking at, at what the organization does well and when it does it well, why does it do it well that way? Um, and I was, it was like light bulbs were going off for me and I, uh -huh. I didn't necessarily know that you would know that material, but I, I kind of loved the connection with it. Uh, called yeah, Appreciative no, Inquiry. Sounds very interesting. Okay, so Adrian asks, is there a narrative that research shows works best in empowering learning in schools? Well, I think uh, the first thing that comes to mind is back to Carol Dweck's work that we mentioned briefly. And she makes a distinction between having a fixed mindset of what learning and intelligence is all about and a growth mindset. So, you know, an example is something you hear often kids say that come back from having done poorly on a math test and they I'm just not a math person. Well, that's a sad thing to hear because um, uh, the better view is not that you either have it or you don't, but rather that it's something you you can study and learn. And so having a, a growth mindset that says that math abilities, like anything else, is like a muscle. It gets stronger when we exercise it. And some powerful parenting lessons here as well, that when our kids come back and they've done well on a math test, I know it's so tempting it was for me to say, you know, you're just so smart. That's great. According to Dweck, that's just the wrong answer because it, it conveys a fixed mindset that you're smart. You you have this thing. Better to say things like, um, well, um, that's great. Your effort really paid off to convey this, this growth mindset idea. I'm going to put a link in the chat, Adrian, to an interview I did with Larry Ferlazzo from the Sacramento area who wrote a book called Helping Students Motivate Themselves. And he took a lot of what would be uh, Tim and Carol Dweck's ideas, those same ideas, and put them into lesson form to help students see themselves as growing learners. I think you might find it really interesting. Um, Tim, what about we? I had a gentleman on the show a couple of weeks ago who started a humanitarian organization that helps villages become self-developing. Their model is to um, 
to work to help the village develop their own leadership team that then determines what it is they want to change and then to figure out how to change it. And, and now having read your book, I saw that in light of kind of the narrative of the village. Um, were they being given handouts and so depend, were they dependent on others or were they strong enough to be able to do their own thing? Uh, and that led me to sort of thinking about education in, at a community level and schools that, that have built a culture around, around an education. Uh, have you seen um, in your own life uh, uh, educational communities that maybe your, your children went to or that you participated in where you felt like there was a really good narrative about what education was about? Uh, well, um, you know, it's, it's funny. I just got back from giving a talk at my alma mater, which is Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts. It's a very small liberal arts college that was founded in the early 1970s and attempts to do college in a very, very different way than, than most universities. And it's very self-directed, uh, emphasizes independent study. There are no grades. Uh, the idea is you master topics and then you move on to another level and culminating in an uh, honors thesis that, that is uh, an independent research project. So, you know, I don't think it's a school that's for everyone, um, but it's, it's one that um, tries to educate people differently and, and really tries to foster narratives in people that, that uh, they can do it and have the ability to do it. Um, so that's, that's the example that comes to mind, uh, I guess, because I was just there. Good. So if you have a question for Tim, feel free to raise your hand. That's the third icon over in the participant window. You can click on that and raise your hand. I'll give you the microphone, or you can put your question in the chat. Um, do you have two children? I get the sense from the book that maybe it's two. Yes, I have a son who's 28 and a daughter who's 23. Do either of them have children? Not yet, no. <laughs> I can't wait for those conversations. Um, <laughs> have, have they read the book? I know that sometimes doesn't happen in busy families, but have they read the book and given you any comments about it? Uh, they have. Um, they're both um, were very complimentary. Um, they, they, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a little eye rolling at parts. Um, particularly why I talked about them, but but uh, no, they've been very generous in their in their praise about it, and and uh, as has my wife who's read it. So that, that's been very gratifying. Did anybody criticize the book in a way that you felt was helpful to you? Well, um, if there's one criticism that's come up, I think um, it's whether, is this really a self-help book or not? And, you know, it's a good question because it is kind of a hybrid book. It's, it's not a traditional self-help book in the sense that its main goal is to improve people's lives. It's really about the science of psychology and what psychology can do to test uh, interventions that can help people. That said, I think there's a lot of advice in there that, that I hope people will find helpful. Each chapter ends with a so-called using it section of how people can apply this to their lives. Uh, but because it's kind of a hybrid, I think there have been uh, a reader or two who has expected this perhaps to be like the secret that would change their lives uh, radically for the better. Not that the secret can really do that, but, but that's how they market the secret. Um, so I think, you know, but, but those readers who have gotten, the, really gotten what I was trying to do, which is, is to say something about the science of psychology and how that can be used in our everyday life, have been quite complimentary. 
I bought the book because I was actually looking for another book at Amazon. And the quotes that were given for your book were so overwhelming, I actually ordered it in advance. Uh, of the people, because uh-huh. there's Dan Gilbert and Carol Dweck, and, um, and, I'm, and I'm not seeing on the back of the book, but I think online there were a number of others of authors that I respected. Who do you like? Don't forget Malcolm Gladwell on the front of the book. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, can't forget that. (laughs) Who do you like to read? Who do I like to read? Um, Well, you know, more and more of my colleagues are writing popular books, uh, trade books, and and, um, uh, I think doing a wonderful job of it. So you mentioned Dan Gilbert, his book, Stumbling on Happiness, uh, is a bestseller that is just a, a wonderfully well-written and funny and, and deep book. Um, uh, I like reading fiction. Um, I love reading um, magazines, The New Yorker. You know, I, I read lots of things. Uh, I'm still a, a, a newspaper, avid newspaper reader, so I, I suck up uh, whatever I can get my hands on. It's funny. I did read Stumbling on Happiness. Um, I've read a, you know, a number of the cognitive books. Uh, I really like Dan Ariely, I think in part because of the experiments that are done. Um, yes. Uh, we've got just a minute or two more. Uh, if you've got a question for Tim, please feel free to raise your hand. I, of, of course, I have lots I want to ask him, but um, uh, if you do have a question, you can either raise your hand or you can put it in the chat. We'll give just a second here. So, um, I kept waiting for there to be a deeper connection with the title. Um, uh, did, did the title come kind of after the book or before, or um, uh, how do you sort of explain the use of the word redirect there? Well, it's funny you say that, Steve, because it was a rather long process to choose that title, and it did come uh, kind of late. Uh, initially, my uh, publisher told me, you know, one-word titles are passe, don't use it. But in the end, that you know, we settled on that, and I'm actually quite happy with it because this idea, you know, back to the idea of the narrative fork in the road, and people need to be uh, directed down one of those paths, um, or if they're already caught in the negative uh, cycle of thinking, they need to be redirected to the positive one. That that really does capture what it is these interventions are are trying to do. So what's next for you? Well, um, I'm still an active teacher and researcher and and, uh, just uh, very much um, uh, active as a college professor. And and, uh, so I don't have another book that is going to come soon. you know, it was nine years between my first two books, and I don't know if that's what it'll be uh, for the third one. But uh, but I'm keeping busy teaching and, and doing my research. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, if it's nine years, I'll be waiting with bated breath. Uh, <laughs> I, I again, I I will tell you that uh, I felt the book was somewhat life changing for me. Uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, the, I think I, when I emailed you, I told you I devoured the book, and that was probably a pretty good uh, description of what took place for me. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I'm going to there, there are some icons there in the participant area, and the smiley face. If you scroll down, you'll see an applause, and I'm now applauding for <laughs> Tim. The book is Redirect: The Surprising New Science of Psychological Change. 
coming up on the Future of Education uh, Thursday night, Gina Bianchini, uh, former CEO of Ning and now uh, the creator of Mighty Bell comes on, and then on Friday, David Lurcher on Libraries and Web 2.0. Uh, Tim, one kind of final comment for me would be that um, uh, Web 2.0 has held this sort of unique place in education as being uh, kind of a shift in um, the creation of writing and the a publicness of it and, and integrating that process into education. And it occurred to me that in many ways maybe there's an opportunity for story editing for educators as they think about using through this increased medium of writing with their students. Um, any comments on that? I think that's a great idea. No, I think it, it um, and you know, as you may recall, there are some examples in the book of writing exercises with, say, middle school students that have had very powerful effects. So I think you're right on the money. Terrific. Okay. Thanks so much for coming on. That was really great. I really appreciate it. As a courtesy to our guests, we always end on time. So we're going we're gonna to wrap up now. Uh, thanks again to Tim. Thanks for you who have joined us or are listening to the recording. Sure appreciate it. Uh, and again, I'll put the book back up on the screen. Redirect the Surprising New Science of Psychological Change. Definitely a five-star book for me. I hope that, uh, that those of you who decide to pick it up will enjoy it. Take care, everybody, and good night. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Tim. Really appreciate it. Terrific job. Thank you.